uh, Luke chapter 1, 39 to 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Thanks, Francis. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we look at this part of his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it reveals Jesus to us and points us to him. We ask now that you would give us understanding through your Holy Spirit and grow us to be more like Jesus through your word. We pray this in his name. Amen. In 1646, an English ballad called The World Turned Upside Down was published protesting against the banning of traditional Christmas celebrations by the English Parliament. You might remember this picture from last week. Wall told us about this ballad. Uh, to ban rejoicing at Christmas, something that's been happening since the angels brought the news to the shepherds, is like turning the world upside down. But the 1640s wasn't the last time that this song played a part in history. Uh, according to one source, it was sung again nearly 140 years later. It was the American Revolution, the Battle of Yorktown, 1761. The American armies had just won a decisive battle against the British, and the British surrendered. And as they retreated under the watchful eye of the Americans, they sang this song, The World Turned Upside Down. You see, for the British, this victory was turning the world upside down. The American colonies had thrown off the rule of the British king. They had established their own rule. The world was upside down. The recent musical Hamilton tells the story of this battle and uses that as its refrain, the world turned upside down. 
But actually, this helps us think about Christmas too. You see, I think we tend to hear the Christmas story so much that it just becomes a a nice story. Oh yeah, virgin birth, baby in a manger, angels and shepherds, cute fluffy animals clustered in a stable, looking at a cute little baby that doesn't cry. It's easy for the story of Christmas to become sterile and harmless. But this is a world-changing story. This is the story of a revolution, the story of a new king, the story of the world being turned upside down, the powerful brought low and the humble exalted, the poor and hungry fed and the rich sent away empty. Christmas is about the world turned upside down. And we actually see that really clearly here in Luke 1, as Gabriel, and Gabriel announces to Mary that she's going to fall pregnant with Jesus, and then she responds with praise. See, right from the beginning of Jesus' life, we see that Jesus, God's promised King, is going to turn the world upside down by blessing and exalting those who humbly trust in Him for salvation. We're going to see that in three parts this morning. We're going to see that the angel announced to Mary God's favour. We're going to see Elizabeth's response of joy. And then we're going to see Mary's response of praise. And through it all, we're going to be challenged in our response to this world-changing event. So let's dive in. It starts with a message of God's favour. Luke starts this passage with specifics. After all, he's not weaving a legend. As Wall showed us last week, Luke is writing so that Theophilus, a Christian, can have confidence in what he's heard about Jesus. Luke's investigated all this. He's like an investigative journalist and he's spoken to eyewitnesses, he's chased down leads and he's written it all in this true account of what really happened. Verse 26... In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Uh, Luke tells us who and where and when, and already we should see that something revolutionary is happening. God is acting, he's sending an angel, just like the one he sent to Zechariah last week. And this angel is being sent to Mary, a virgin, a virgin who's betrothed to someone in the house of David, the line of God's promised king. And look at what this angel says, verse 28, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, the Catholic Bible translates verse 28 as, Hail Mary, full of grace. As if Mary herself is full of grace and a source of grace for others. But that's not what the angel is saying. He is saying that she has been favoured by God's grace. God has graciously chosen her to play this important part in his plan. She is not a channel or dispenser of grace. She's a recipient of grace. And she's pretty confused by the angel's greeting. She's a nobody, a poor girl. Why would she be given such favour? Gabriel explains in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel says Mary's going to conceive and bear a son. She's going to name him Jesus, which means salvation is the Lord's. But this isn't really about Mary herself. The angel says a lot more about who this baby is and what this baby is going to do. He'll be great and powerful. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. This language would have made Mary think of the Old Testament, of 2 Samuel 7, where God says that his king will be called the Son of God. He, she probably doesn't realise yet the full meaning of this, that this child won't just be called the Son of God, but he is God the Son himself taking on flesh. But in case we're in any doubt about Jesus being God's promised king, the angel says that the Lord will give him the throne of David and he will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will never end. And this passage isn't really about how amazing Mary is. She is favoured because she gets to take this special place in God's plan. She gets to bear Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. He's the one Luke wants us to see. He's the one who will reign forever as God's promised king. And because of that, this is revolutionary. This is going to turn the world upside down. God's king is finally coming. So far, this sounds a lot like what's happened a bunch of other times in the Bible, right? God promises a child who's part of his plan and wives have been having babies with their husbands for a long time now. But Mary understands that the angel is saying something miraculous, something new. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is not going to be an ordinary baby. Mary is going to conceive even though she's a virgin, even before she marries Joseph. Now, Gabriel's very clear here. This isn't like Greek myths where gods would conceive demigod children by being intimate with women. This is something else. This is going to be a non-sexual creative work of the Holy Spirit. Just like the Holy Spirit worked in creation, he is going to work to do this work of creation in her womb. She will conceive a son without a human father. This has been a key belief of Christians ever since. The Apostles' Creed that dates back to the 4th century says, we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And again, this says more about Jesus than it does about Mary. Because this will mean that Jesus is called Holy, the Son of God. This sounds too incredible to believe, but the angel gives Mary proof. Her cousin Elizabeth, verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible for God. 
not even creating new life in the womb. Elizabeth, who was barren and is now six months pregnant, is proof of that. Where Zechariah responded with questioning skepticism and was struck mute, Mary responds with humble, willing faith. Verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's not miss how difficult this would have been for Mary. Uh, Imagine her trying to explain to others how she'd fallen pregnant outside of marriage. In ancient Israel, adultery could be punished by being stoned to death. By accepting this, Mary is accepting at least sideways glances, mocking, suffering, maybe even death. But she humbles herself before God. She calls herself a servant of the Lord. She doesn't question God, she humbly accepts his word. And this points us towards our right reaction to Jesus at Christmas, our right response to this king, this baby who will turn the world upside down. Our right response too is to humble ourselves before him and accept his word that he is king. But that's not all, because this news, it's also news of joy. Mary's humble, willing faith doesn't stay at home and do nothing. She acts straight away, it seems. She packs a bag and heads off to see Elizabeth. Just as the angel said, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. But something happens when Elizabeth hears Mary come in, verse 41. When Mary heard the greeting of Mary, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, everyone knows that babies kick and move around, right? That's just what they do. I used to love feeling the girls kick while Jess was pregnant, although sometimes it wasn't so pleasant for her. But this is no ordinary kick. Something bigger is going on here. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she explains, verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth doesn't get jealous. She doesn't demand that the spotlight stay on her. She blesses Mary and her child. She sees it as a great privilege to even have her in her house. And even Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, jumps for joy. This can only be the work of the Holy Spirit. John, whose ministry will be to prepare the way for Jesus responds to Jesus with great joy even before he's born. This is the world turned upside down. This is the revolution Jesus has come to bring. He will bring joy to God's people. Elizabeth, who's been barren for years and years, shouts for joy about Jesus. The baby John, still in the womb, leaps for joy. Angels are going to announce that this birth is good news of great joy. Jesus is going to continue to bring this kind of joy throughout his life. Uh, Paralyzed men are going to walk and leap with joy through Jerusalem as a picture of the healing that Jesus is bringing in his kingdom. Children are going to be welcomed to Jesus with joy. 
The demon oppressed are going to be set free. Sinners weighed down by their sin are going to find forgiveness and acceptance and love in Jesus. Later, his followers will even go to their deaths with joyful confidence because of the sure hope of, for the future that Jesus has brought. Jesus, this baby in Mary's womb, probably not even big enough that Mary would show, this baby is going to bring this kind of world-changing joy. In fact, Jesus is still bringing that kind of world-changing joy. Uh, this is another picture of how we can respond to Jesus. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, the promise of his coming again, the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is good news of great joy. This is news that is steadfast and sure, even in the midst of our suffering, even when our world seems to be losing its mind, even when our society celebrates sin and rejects God, even when we face death itself. Because Jesus is the risen, glorious King, we can face those things with a rock-solid joy. This doesn't mean we won't grieve or groan or cry out to God. It doesn't mean we won't weep with each other. Of course we will. That's a right response to our fallen world. But underlying all of that, we have a rock-solid, unshakable reason for joy. And that reason is Jesus. Which brings us to our third point. Mary responds this news and to Elizabeth with praise. Mary's response is to burst into song. But this is a song of praise, praising God for what he's done for her and for his people. We've just finished recently a series through 1 Samuel. And this song should remind us of the beginning of 1 Samuel. Remember Hannah, who was barren? And she cried out to God, and, and God answered her prayer with a child, Samuel, and she celebrated God's provision with a song, a song about God's promised king, a song about how God would bring down the mighty and exalt the humble, a song about how it's not by might that a man shall prevail, but by the Lord. Do you remember that? Mary's song sounds an awful lot like Hannah's song. Probably because Mary has just had days' worth of travel on the road to reflect on the news of the angel. Maybe days of travel to reflect on Hannah's song. And she realises God is doing it again. He is graciously exalting the humble and preparing the way for his king. And so Mary's response to God's blessing, like Hannah, is to praise God. Verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary magnifies the Lord. That is, she wants everyone around her to see how good and kind and gracious and powerful and holy the Lord is. And not only that, but she rejoices in God her Saviour. She recognises that He saves her. She's not sinless or perfect. She needs a Saviour too. And so she rejoices in the salvation that God is providing. Why? 
For the Lord has seen her humble status and he has blessed her. The Lord, the mighty one, the one who created all things, has looked on her and done great things for her. He has given her an important place in his work of salvation. It's true that all generations will call Mary blessed, but not because she in herself is so amazing, but because God has shown her grace. He has exalted her. He's given her this privilege. And Jesus, God's promised king, being born to Mary, will turn the world upside down. Mary lifts her eyes now from what God has done for her to what God is doing for all his people. Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Through Jesus, God is in the business of turning the world upside down. He's going to scatter the proud. He's going to bring down the mighty. He's going to send the rich away empty. But he's going to lift up the humble and fill the hungry. The Lord is going to bless and exalt the humble where the proud will be brought down. But this isn't just about rich and poor, powerful and not powerful. God is not just going to exalt the poor no matter what. The key is there in verse 50. Look at it again. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy is for those who fear him. At the end of the day, it's not about rich or poor, hungry or full. It's about those who humbly submit themselves before God. Now, when we hear the word fear, we think of being afraid, unsure that we're, whether we're safe or not, of trembling in terror, fight or flight, that kind of thing. But that's not really what it means when it talks about fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord is humbly treating him with the respect and honour and trust that he deserves, both as our creator and as our saviour. It's a common theme in the Old Testament. Remember, the fool lives as if there's no God, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The proud man doesn't fear God. He's full of himself, and so the Lord scatters him. But the humble one who fears the Lord, who humbly trusts him to save, the Lord will exalt him. Mary's a lived example of this. She's poor and humbly, lowly, lo, <laughs> poor and humble, lowly, but her response to the Lord's word is humble, obedient trust. She fears the Lord and he graciously exalts her. He turns her world upside down. But others, like Herod and the Pharisees will refuse to fear the Lord and recognize Jesus and they will fall from their powerful positions. God will bring them down. He does it all through Jesus. The one who humbles himself by being born as a human baby, who humbly trusts the Lord and serves him all his days, who humbles himself to death on a cross and rises from the dead, exalted above all others in glorious victory the name above every other name. We see right here from the beginning, Jesus, God's promised king, is going to turn the world upside down by blessing and exalting those who humbly trust in him for salvation. 
And this is actually the fulfillment of all God's promises to his people, stretching all the way back to the beginning. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God is saving Israel, showing them mercy, just as he promised Abraham, just as he promised David, just as he promised Adam and Eve when he promised an offspring of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. In Jesus, God is keeping all of his promises. Christmas isn't just a nice story with cute barn animals and angels and shepherds. It's a revolution. It's a world turned upside down, the proud humbled and the humble raised up. God's promises fulfilled, and all of it through Jesus, this baby growing in the virgin's womb. And again, we see here in Mary a picture of our right response to Jesus. She responds by praising God, by magnifying him, that is declaring his goodness and mercy, his power and holiness, declaring those things so that others too can see who he is and what he's done so that he can get the credit and praise that he deserves. And that's one of the things that we do when we gather. We sing God's praises together. We declare what he's done. We speak the truth of the gospel to one another in word and in song. But our praise doesn't end when we walk out those doors. Our right response to Jesus is declaring his praises every chance that we get. Looking for opportunities to speak of the Lord to our neighbours and our friends and our families. Encouraging one another, not just on Sunday, but through the week with who God is. Declaring God's goodness every chance that we get. Now, I don't mean being awkward and weird about it. But I do mean looking for those opportunities, wherever they are, to speak of Jesus. And what better opportunity than now when everyone is talking about Christmas anyway? Maybe it's simply starting a conversation by saying how you plan on going to church on Christmas Day. Or how you love Christmas carols that talk about the joy that we have in Jesus. How can you magnify God to others this week? And second, we see here that our right response to the Lord is to fear him. This means recognising him as the all-powerful creator of the universe and being humbled before his awesome power and glory. It means recognising his holiness and goodness, that he's perfectly righteous and we are not. But it also means recognising him not just as creator and king and judge, but seeing him as our saviour and our father. If we have faith in Jesus, then through him we have forgiveness and mercy and grace and adoption as God's sons. We don't fear God with the kind of terrified fear that is afraid of being sent away or destroyed. We fear God with the kind of grateful, joyful respect that comes from being saved to be his people. That will mean letting go of being in control, letting go of thinking you can earn God's favour yourself, letting go of your pride as a good Christian person and humbly trusting God for everything, resting in what Jesus has done, crying out to him for help to live as God's people. 
and then listening to and obeying his words as those who belong to him. That's our right response to Jesus this Christmas. Our right response to the one who turns the world upside down because there's no greater revolution than this. Jesus, God's own son, come in the flesh, come to be our king, our saviour, our God. Come to set us free, to bring down the proud and to exalt the humble. He is the one that's worth humbly trusting, the one that's worth rejoicing in, the one that's worth praising, and then the one that's worthy of our fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the one who turns the world upside down, who brings down the proud but exalts the humble. Father, please help us this Christmas to see that big picture of who Jesus is and help us to respond to him with humble trust, with joy, with praise, declaring him to others and with right fear of you, our God. Thank you for the mercy and grace that you show us in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.